Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Uh, This is a true story. A psychiatrist was treating three patients at a psychiatric facility who all suffered from delusions of grandeur. However, all three men believed they were Jesus Christ. The doctor worked very hard to get them all in touch with reality, but as you can imagine, it was very difficult to get through. He could not convince them that they were not God in the flesh. For several years, the doctor actually got the three men lived together. They would eat together, sleep in the same room, and every afternoon they would have a group therapy session. He had hoped that as they did this, as they spent time with each other, uh, they would get in touch with reality, I suppose, Uh, that reality would set in, that they were not God. Sadly, the doctor was unsuccessful in his attempts, but it did lead to very interesting conversations. No, they didn't decide that they were the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, respectively, as Sue thought when I told her the story. In one conversation, one of the men said, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. I was sent here to save the earth. And the doctor asked, how do you know this? The patient invariably answered, God told me. Right there and then another man interjected, I never told you any such thing. (laughs) And when the third chimed in, uh, chaos ensued with each man believing that the other two uh, two were patients in the hospital and that he was the real deal. Before we get carried away feeling smug about ourselves in comparison to these three men, don't we all have delusions of grandeur about ourselves? Listen to what God says in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 2. In the pride of your heart, you say, I'm a God. I sit on the throne of a God. But you are a mere mortal but not, and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. It's not something that, that as Christians we would say, right? Because we know it's not true and it's blasphemous. Atheists get to say that, but certainly not Christians. But it comes through, though, in the way we live our lives, where God is virtually planned out of our lives, where God remains in the periphery of our lives. And when that happens, are we not saying that we are God? Are we not saying that we can do a better job than God? The idol of me. That is what we're going to be talking about this morning as we conclude our series, God at War, Defeating the Idols of Your Heart. The God of me is at the heart of all the other gods we've looked at in the past few weeks. Our delusion of grandeur can be traced all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it either or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. God, knowing good and evil. 
The author describes Satan as crafty for very good reason. Look at how he gets inside the heads of Adam and Eve and inside our heads. First, he compromises what God says. Are you really sure that is what God said to you? Did God really say, etc., etc., etc.? Whenever we read something in the Bible that doesn't agree with us, instead of saying, God, I'm really confused about these difficult passages that seem to indicate that you sanctioned genocide, but I'm going to trust you that there is a good explanation for it. Instead of doing that, we get all puffed up in our pride and in our anger, and we put God on the dock, after which we either abandon our faith or we make the Bible conform to the view that we like or prefer. Don't we do that? If something we disagree with, whatever it is in the Scripture, we judge the Scripture. We don't let the the Scripture judge us, but we judge it. And this is nothing new. The Apostle Peter writing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also, the Apostle Paul, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. There's your warning right there. If there's something you read that doesn't agree with you, there might come a time when we need to say, God, I don't understand this, but I'm going to have to trust you that you know what you're saying and you know what you're doing. If we pass the first test, then the second thing that Satan throws at us is that he undermines God's character. Quote, and I'm paraphrasing, he doesn't have your best interest at heart, Carol. He doesn't. Do what he says, and you will be shortchanged every single time. Like this ridiculous command not to eat from the knowledge of good and evil, or else you will die. It's all a lie. It's all a scam. He's lying to you. He knows if you eat from this tree, far from dying, It's just a scare tactic. You will end up like God. You will end up being equal with God, and that means you won't need to depend on him anymore. You'll be free from him. Let's not be too hard on Adam and Eve, right? Surely you have to admit that the promise that we will be like God, all-powerful, all-knowing, is very tempting, right? (laughs) Very tempting. But it's a lie. It's a lie. Satan knows it because once upon a time he thought he could be God by rejecting the limits God had placed on him, only to discover one fundamental truth, and that is it's an impossibility for the created to become the uncreated. And there is only one being in the universe who is uncreated, and that person is not you or I, that person is God. And that is why those who try to be God are delusional and insane. But even so, that has not stopped us from trying. And what did Einstein say about insanity? You remember that. By seeking to be as God rather than accept the finitude and dependence on God, the image of God in Adam and Eve and in humankind were shattered, were alienated from God. 
confusion and distortion now mark the human sense of personal identity, security, and worth. The image of God in Adam and Eve and in us remained, but it was defiled. Instead of a self who's God-centered and God-dependent, we now have a self who's self-centered, autonomous and independent, and the ultimate authority rather than God. He no longer, God no longer, no longer becomes the standard of truth. We are. Our perception of uh, reality, consequently, is blurred, distorted, and perverted. The result of our rejection of God and alienation from God is that we frantically seek to compensate for what Keller terms our feelings of cosmic nakedness and powerlessness. That's why in any culture where there is a loss of belief in God, the vacuum inside of us still needs to be filled. You see, if you believe that you're here by accident, if you believe that you are not made for a purpose, how do we instill this sense of purpose, this sense of worth, and this sense of uh, significance in our lives? In his book that won the Pulitzer Prize, The Denial of Death, the late American anthropologist and psychologist, Ernest Becker, wrote that sex and romance would take the place of God. Decades before, Friedrich Nietzsche thought that with the absence of God growing in Western culture, money would replace God. Whether it is the counterfeit God of sex or romance, money, pleasure, or success that we recruit to fill the black hole of our hearts, as Carrie Packer describes his, the inordinate desires that mislead me, that arise within me, are all about me in my desperate attempts to escape the rule of God in my attempts to be God. The late David Paulison, a counselor and, uh, and an adjunct professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, writes, sin's operations include an inner psychological dimension that is relentlessly self-centering, self-exalting, self-willed, and self-deceived. We believe lies, pursue lusts, and flee fears. Ego usurps God and assertively self-destructs. We're tempted by our own desires, which birth sin, which result in death. A most uh, recent example of this self-obsession would have to be Sydney's most notorious conwoman, Melissa Caddick, who fooled the family, her friends, and the finance industry. She was actually a very successful businesswoman at the peak of a career. While in her 30s, she founded her own legitimate, successful financial services company. Here's Melissa. Uh, gracing the cover of a top, pla uh, top financial planning magazine in October 2003. A wise choice, the magazine said, Australia's best planning practice. She was even dispensing pearls of uh, financial wisdom in the Australian newspaper. This is what a former colleague, her former colleague said of her back then. You cannot scratch your nose without compliance being all over it. She knows what to do and what not to do. 
In 2013, she began a new company, Malavert. And that was the start of her fraudulent activities, although ASIC has alleged that Kadic's misappropriation may have begun as early as May 2009. So she used her past reputation built on hard work and integrity to lure her family of friends and acquaintances who entrusted her to grow their retirement funds. One victim of Melissa said, I quote, we trusted her because she was Melissa. Why would we not trust her? She bought her parents a 2.5 million house in addition to the one she got for herself valued at 6.5 million. She developed a taste for luxury goods, expensive travel and designer clothes. She spent 63,000 alone on one Fijian holiday with her husband and brother, and she took along her personal chef. Between 2017 and 2020, she spent 230,000 on Dior products. 230,000. And 180,000 on jewelry designed by Stefano Canturi, whoever he is. Anybody familiar with Stefano Canturi? 60K uh, at, at, at Chanel, $250,000 on shoes. She preferred traveling in private jets and limousines. To keep the scam going, she created fake spreadsheets and fake ComSec documents for her clients. All in all, authorities believe that she scammed people to the tune of $25 million. And don't forget, her victims included her parents and her brother and family members. Her appearance of success, wealth, power, affluence was all funded by other people's hard-earned money. No wonder she has been described as the con artist of the century and a narcissistic sociopath. It was an elaborate, calculated, and heartless scam, and she didn't care that her deception would ruin lives irreparably, including her parents who stand to lose their home. In the Old Testament, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah sums up the idolatry of the people of Israel using the metaphor of cistern. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Cisterns were an important part of everyday life in hot and dry Israel. Rain was scarce for half of the year. So people dug great holes in the ground and covered the sides with bricks and plasters to hold the water. But over time, though, the plaster wore and cracked. To quote one observer from the 19th century who saw one of these cisterns, he writes, the best cisterns, even those in solid rock, are strangely liable to crack. And if by constant care they're made to hold, yet the water collected from clay roofs or from marley soil as the color of weak soap suds. The taste of the earth or the stable, it is full of worms, and in the hour of greatest need, it utterly 
fails. Keep that picture in your mind, all right? You've got a picture? It's horrible water. It shouldn't be much of a choice, therefore, between drinking from cisterns that held dank, stale, and horrible and putrid water and the unfailing supply, the unfailing and endless supply of refreshing water. It shouldn't be much of a choice, right? And yet, the people of Israel chose the former. And no wonder heaven looked on with great horror. If you think that is unimaginable and insane, that's what we do when we choose cisterns, false idols, including the most relentless of all is the idol of me, when we choose us and any other idols above God. It just is as insane as the picture that God just described. They chose cisterns over spring of living water. That's what my people are doing. I don't get it. I don't understand. It breaks my heart to see my children choose to drink stale and putrid water rather than spring of fresh and living water. How is this even possible? But it is. And don't forget, these are broken cisterns, which means that even the stagnant water that's within them will run out eventually. And this metaphor definitely captures perfectly the insanity of trusting idols, the choosing of idols over Yahweh, the God of gods, and the Lord of lords. Idols will always leave you disappointed and disillusioned. Your thirst will never be quenched, no matter how hard you try to quench it. In John chapter 4, we come across a woman who relied on her cisterns until she met Jesus, the spring of living water. John tells us in John chapter 4, verse 4, that Jesus en route to, Samaria, to Galilee had to go through Samaria to a town called Sychar. But if you look at a map, it is not true that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Most Jews in Jesus' day bypassed Samaria all the time because of their disdain for the Samaritans. Jesus had to go through Samaria by choice because he wanted to meet a woman. He longed to meet a woman who was digging cisterns her whole life and drinking out of water that from cisterns she dug her whole life in the form of intimate relationships with men. She had been married five times, each of which ended in heartbreak and disappointment. And when Jesus met her, she was in, in fact, in a de facto relationship. She didn't know any better, and Jesus was desperate to introduce her to another source of water. It was about noon when Jesus showed up at the well, which would have been around 30 meters deep. He was resting and desperate for a drink, but he didn't have a bucket with which to draw water from the well, but he knew that the woman would be there shortly. When she arrived, Jesus asked for a drink. Taken aback, she replied in verse 9, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? 
for Jews do not associate with Samaritans, John explains. Seizing a teachable moment, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Puzzle, and uh, maybe a little irritated by Jesus' reply, the woman challenged Jesus and pointed out that he didn't have a bucket. So how is he able to offer this living water to her? It was at this point that Jesus clarified that he wasn't referring to physical water. Verse 13 to 15, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. There is so much water that will flow out of you if you drink from me that it will actually uh, refresh others. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So clearly the woman is not getting it. She's still thinking about this magical physical water. Jesus illustrates his point further by gently unveiling the woman's painful past. Verse 16 to 18, go, call your husband, and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So what you have just said is quite true. Thank you for your honesty. Have you ever disclosed anything to someone and then regret it? and wish you could take it all back. I think that's how the woman felt. Oh, no. I tell her that I don't have a husband. She tells me my life story. What else is she going to expose in me? So the woman decided to change tack very quickly. Seeing that uh, Jesus is some kind of prophet, she went theological on him. After some toing and froing, she says to Jesus, all right, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. This is the only time we know in Jesus' life and ministry in which he intentionally revealed his identity. And when he did this, the woman whose name is concealed realizes that her search for water, for thirst-quenching water is over. The Messiah called Christ is the wellspring of her soul. The Messiah standing in front of her, speaking to her, is her greatest treasure. We mustn't be too harsh on this lady. Whatever her story was, she was clearly thirsty for love, acceptance, validation, and significance. We all crave for that. There's nothing wrong with those things. But she took matters into her own hands and decided that the longing of her heart would be fulfilled by being in relationship with a man. That she thought that is understandable. 
very understandable. Let's not be quick to condemn. There's something you and I have done, have we not? When you are in pain, you want relief. When you're thirsty and hungry, you want something to drink and something to eat. When the first relationship didn't work for her, she tried again with another man and with another and with another and with another. But she, but she discovered that it only left her more thirsty than ever before. Like her, many of our needs are legitimate, but like her, we're often looking in the wrong places to soothe our pain, to soothe our longings, to soothe, to fill the void that are in our hearts. In his book on suffering, David Paulison noted that so often our initial reaction to painful suffering is, why me? Why, the, why now? Why, why, why? He wrote, God comes for you in the flesh, in Christ, into suffering on your behalf. He does not offer advice and perspective from afar. He steps into your significant suffering. He will see you through and work with you the whole way. He will carry you even in extremists. This reality changes the questions that rise up for you, from your heart. That inward turning, why me, quiets down, lifts its eyes and begins to look around. You turn outward and new wonderful questions form. Why you? Why you? Why would you enter this world of evils? Why would you go through loss, weakness, hardship, sorrow, and death? Why would you do this for me? Of all people, have you ever thought of that? Why he would do this for us? But he did. You did this for the joy set before you. You did this for love. You did this showing the glory of God in the face of Christ. And as that deeper question sinks home, you become joyously insane, joyously sane. The universe is no longer supremely about you. Yet you are not irrelevant. God's story makes you just the right size. Don't you love that? God's story makes you just the right size. Everything counts, but the scale changes to something that makes much more sense. You face hard things, but you have already received something better which can never be taken away, and that something better will continue to work out the whole journey along. Profound words. Jesus says to each and every one of us this morning, the promise that Satan made that you can be God. The promise that he made that you can be the master of your own fate and captain of your own soul. That the cisterns you dig will leave you satisfied and fulfilled is a lie. Is a lie. It is I, and I alone, the spring of living water, who can satisfy. Come to me. And drink from me, and you'll never be thirsty again. For I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Brothers and sisters, there is no God but God, and there is no rest for any people who rely on any God 
but God. Let God be God. Amen? Let God be God. Let's pray. Oh, before we do, I sent you the application by email. I don't know whether you've done it, but the first one is listen to two songs. The first one you're probably familiar with, You Say by Lauren Daigle, but the second song was only released last year. My worth is not in what I own, Keith and Christine Getty. Lovely, lovely, lovely songs. Beautiful, rich. The lyrics are absolutely rich. So Google, it's easier to find. Just type the songs and then lyrics. But if you have a headphone, listen to it with a headphone. Be undistracted. Don't listen as you're washing the dishes, okay? (laughs) Don't listen as you're washing the car or doing something else. Just find that time. It won't take more than 15 minutes. Listen to those two songs and then read the article that I sent you. Why Vines and Fig Trees Are Still Relevant by Ruth Baker. Okay? Do that. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and Savior, please help us see the insanity of forsaking you the spring of living water for the stale, tainted, putrid, unpleasant water found in cisterns of our own making. Please intervene in our lives in your mercy as often as necessary to achieve this. And help us see in the words of that beautiful song that I just quoted that our worth and identity are not found in what we own. They're not found in our success, our skill, our name. They're not found in win or lose in pride or shame. Our worth and identity are not found in fame, youth and beauty, not in wealth or might or wisdom's fleeting light. Instead, they're found in the costly wounds of love at the cross and the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. Our Redeemer, our greatest treasure, the wellspring of our soul. Teach us, Lord, a trust in you and no other, whether rain, hail, or shine, for our soul can only be satisfied in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.